Let's continue to worship by standing as I read from Romans 8, uh, verses 18 through 28. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, guys. Everyone good? All right. I'm glad you're here today. Uh, my name's Chris, lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. Uh, last week, um, I want to come back to something I said in passing and kind of dig into it. Last week, we said that we'd be naive to think that we can follow a person who suffered uh, Jesus without suffering ourselves. And I, I just want to come back to that idea because I know that for many of us, the idea of suffering, uh, it's a thing, you know? There's a, there's a, there's a thing there about suffering. Uh, and so we just want to dig in today to where suffering fits into the Christian walk. In 2011, uh, a study by John Hopkins University reported that the U.S. healthcare system spent around $560 billion in the industry of pain management. Uh, that's far more uh, than we pay for cancer or diabetes or heart disease. So in America, we have a, a billion-dollar industry built on one thing, the avoiding of suffering. Uh, in our day, uh, with our medical advances that we all enjoy, we can almost think that we've escaped pain through technology, can't we? But in reality, um, all, uh, despite all of our insulation from pain in the modern world, I think all of that insulation we enjoy today uh, from pain in the modern world has only heightened our anxiety around the prospect of pain and suffering and therefore increased our efforts to avoid it at all cost. Right? We will pay whatever we have to pay to avoid pain and suffering, right? Do whatever we have to do to avoid discomfort. Um, modern first world countries are at the same time, this is fascinating, I think, modern first world countries are at the same time more insulated from pain and more afraid of it, right? So now, no one uh, likes to suffer, I don't, or see people suffer, but a big part of what we said last week is that we live in a post-Genesis 3 fallen, broken world. So we said last week, and suffering and pain have become weaved into the fabric of existence. Uh, now, this fact about pain and suffering uh, can make some Christians very uncomfortable, right? You might be like, dude, why are you got to talk about this today, right? So what we do as Christians is we Heisman suffering and sorrow and grief, and we do this really interesting thing. 
We treat it as if it's non-Christian to go through difficult times. Like Job's friends. Remember Job? You've sinned, right? Um, let me tell you what this creates. Do you have this in your head at all? I can't, I can't struggle. I'm a Christian. Do you have that a bit? Let me tell you what that creates in church culture and in, in, in Christian society, Bible Belt South. It creates an atmosphere where um, when, not if, when you go through a difficult season, either it's in your work or in your marriage or personally, um, the one place you should be able to go to raise your hand and find healing is the one place you feel alienated and condemned and judged for struggling. This is a huge tool of the enemy, right? Like, where does that come from? The one place that we come to hear about salvation and redemption is the one place we don't feel able to say, yeah, I need that. <laughs> like, I'm kind of struggling a little bit, kind of under the water some, right? Not going to go up and get prayer, not going to be honest. Dude, where's that come from? It comes from this idea that it's, if you're suffering, it's your fault because you must have sinned. Dude, I'm not going to take, I mean, that might be true sometimes, right? But according to Jesus, it is not true all the time. It's not true all the time. John 9, verse 2. There's a man that was blind from birth, and his disciples, they, they agreed with us. They, you, you're suffering because you've sinned. It's your fault, dummy. Quit sinning, and you'll quit suffering. So they had that idea, and they saw this blind guy, and they walk up. They're right, he's right next to him. He's like, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? It's like, dude, he's, he's blind. He's not deaf. You know? Come on. That's so mean. Right? And do you know what Jesus says in response? He says, no one. No one. It wasn't him, and it wasn't his parents. He says, this is so that the work of God could be displayed in him. Jesus saw suffering as an opportunity for God to reveal himself to you. So while death, sin, and suffering entered the cosmos because of sin, it is not as easy and clean as a simple equation to get down to personal suffering equals personal sin. It's not that clean, y'all. Let me tell you why. Despite the overwhelming amount of scripture in the New Testament concerning suffering, some Christians have zero theology for pain and suffering. They have a theology for abundance, they have a theology for prosperity. They do not have a, a theology for adversity and wants. And this reality in many people's faith, oh, I'm sorry, this reality has caused many people's faith to shrivel up in the presence of any real pain. They withdraw their faith as if their comfort is the service God has to provide before they'll believe in him. This is a crazy thing. You get, you got, should I say that again? Yes. They, they withdraw their faith as if their comfort is the service God has to provide first for them to believe in them, him. You got me? They hold up their comfort as ransom. You, you give me comfort, and then I'll believe in you. All right? And here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing, man. I think God does want to heal and miraculously intervene and, and restore us to wake us up to his goodness. He wants to reveal things about him. He wants to reveal that he loves us. He wants to shade us under his wings. He does the miraculous to do that. But I just can't find anything in the New Testament that says Christians are entitled to a pain-free existence. In fact, 
The New Testament is going to have a, a drastically different perspective on suffering than we do as modern Americans. See, modern Christians, modern Americans have this far-fetched kind of implied idea that when you become a Christian, everything just falls into place perfectly. Now, why do we have that? Because many well-meaning people disclude the part of their testimony that happened after they became Christians where they struggled. So they just say, I was struggling and it was horrible, and then I'm a Christian and now everything's awesome, right? No longer fight with my wife ever, right? My kids, they just obey me the first time. All my bad habits disappeared. All the closest parking spaces at the mall open up. I don't know. I'm finding great deals at Ross. Hashtag blessed, right? And it's implied, okay? Um, and that type of attitude, it, it absorbs into us, and we think, you know the promise of Christianity? The promise of Christianity is essentially, if I obey, things will go well. How did that work out for Jesus? He is the only man who ever obeyed fully. And what did that get him? Now, of course, on the one hand, if you submit to God, things will, they'll probably go better. Let's think about it. God knows how the human machine works. And when we submit to his ways, the machine tends to run well. One time, my car ran out of oil. Didn't work out for me, right? Or the car. God knows how to make you flourish. He knows how to make you flourish. The problem's not there. The problem is that we still live here. Okay? Where not everyone believes God knows best. You know what that works, how that works its way out? People live in rampant greed and violence and insecurities and selfishness. And all that kind of stuff has collateral in the world, doesn't it? I know we like to think we can sin in a vacuum, but you cannot. Husband, you cannot sin in a vacuum. Wife, your sin will impact those around you. But when people have this simplistic understanding, if, if I follow God, everything will be awesome, then when, not if, hello, when, not if, we hit difficult seasons, they become utterly disoriented. God, I thought you loved me. See, when you equate being a Christian with getting the closest parking spot at the mall, or finding a good deal at Ross, then when you don't get those things, well, I guess God doesn't love you anymore, does he? What are you looking for to affirm the fact that God loves you? What if you lose your job? Does God hate you? What if you get sick, the kind of sick that doesn't heal? God, how could you let this happen? Hello? Uh, uh, this, is re this is where we live, people. How could you let this happen to me? Do I get a flat tire? I'm like, come on, you know? How could you let this person die? And hardship comes to us as an affront to our faith, doesn't it? And most people find themselves angry at God for something he never promised them in the first place. And the effect, my friends, is an egregious amount of people who hold up some difficult circumstance in their life as to why they no longer believe in God. Is that not true? You hear it every day. Well, I did go to church and then my dad died. And I, out. You see? And I'm going to tell you this. If you're a Christian, if you, if you respond like this to suffering, I just want to gently slide across the table. Could it be possible that you are worshiping your comfort? 
and not the God of the Bible? Like, could it be possible that that's the most important thing to you? Because if your comfort is your idol, then suffering is your greatest nightmare. And your life falls apart when you suffer. See, I don't really want to be a fair-weather Christian, although I find myself as such from time to time. I don't really want to be the kind of guy who can only praise when all is well and my belly is full and when I'm surrounded by material blessings and abundance. Can I, sell, can I tell you, if that is your faith, you have a weak, fragile, easily threatened faith that literally sits on the, knife of, the edge of a knife. And I think God longs to secure you in a way that is so much more real and lasting and, so, and, and not dependent on the weather or the state of your digestion. I just have a suspicion that our faith is not so weak, that our faith is not so fragile. So if we look at the Bible, from a surface level, dude, you, one could read the gospel and imply that Jesus came so that we would not have to suffer anymore. Couldn't you imply that? What are the, what's the stuff that Jesus did? Dude, he's healing everyone, right? Well, actually not everyone, but a lot of people. The blind, the lame, evil spirits are cast out. Even the dead are raised. Y'all, it's the already of the kingdom, but not yet in its fullness, right? God does miraculous signs. Yeah, does he bless dudes? Yes. And one day, fully and forever, he will vanquish pain and suffering and death. Yes, yes, yes. But we live here. And there's work to be done, friends. And we have to reckon with the world that is writhing under the consequences of sin. Y'all, we're still in it. A lot of Christians like to stick their head in the sand when it comes to the suffering of the world. And they, pro they promote a cavalier triumphalism over all suffering. They close their eyes to poverty and homelessness and abuse, and they say, let the government deal with it. And the effect of that is we get to stay on cloud nine in our experience with Jesus. The only problem is like people still suffer. And there is still pain and death and sickness and genocide and cancer and evil, right? And often Christians deal with suffering by either being an escapist and sticking their head in the sand or becoming more of a Buddhist than a Christian and resigning to suffering as God's will and lose all drive to be a catalyst for change in the world. Did you hear that? Resigning to suffering as well, I guess this is, we're just, let's resign to it. And what happens when you resign to that? You lose all drive to be a catalyst for change in the world. You think, well, it's just, just the deal. What's the biblical position towards suffering, y'all? Y'all, if we don't have a robust theology for suffering, when difficult times come, our faith will get put on the negotiation table, right? So the Bible teaches, like we said last week, that pain and death and suffering, dude, all that stuff entered because man said, I'll do this my own way. It's true. God gave us authority over the earth and we blew the place up. Romans 8, that's why we read it, all creation groaning under the curse of sin, right? But according to John 9 and Luke 13, what we're about to read, Jesus seems to think God is not up there throwing down poison ivy you know, on you, right? Mosquito infestation, right? Flu, cancer, car accident, that'll fix them. Many of us have an idea of God like this that looks more like the Greek gods. Jesus seemed to think that suffering is the expected course of living in a world that has rebelled against God and that those are the exact thing that he came to fix in part now and in fullness one day. I just have a strong conviction there will be no mosquitoes in heaven, right? <laughs> Prove. Yeah. Or spiders, right? See, we think I'm suffering. God must hate me. Listen, listen. Hello. Can just look at me real quick. You have not encountered God. 
you've encountered what it means to be a human. Okay? Now, I've said this before, and this is why it is so counterproductive to say that Katrina was because all the sinners in New Orleans, or to say that natural disaster is God's wrath on this town or that town. Jesus' response to that kind of thinking is shocking. Let me show it to you, Luke 13. In Luke 13, some people had brought up an incident that they thought was God's judgment, right? Okay, they must have sinned, and so this happened. And, and we know they're asking that because this is how Jesus responds. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Or, and Jesus brings up another incident. Or what about those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too, all, will perish. Dude, he totally dismantles this idea of a straight line between our personal sin and our personal suffering. He says, dude, we live in a world saturated with the consequences of sin. And Jesus says, and it's in you too. So I'd be real careful when you're handling out death and judgment on those you think deserve it. It is not a simple mechanism, y'all. It's not that you press the sin button and cancer for you. No, dude, we live in a broken, fallen world down to the cellular level where atrophy and decay and corruption and pain permeates all of creation, no matter how hard we try to escape suffering, even clouding it in Christianese terms, it finds us. In the movie The Village, one of my favorite movies, it's a movie about this town, this group of people that try to escape modern suffering um, and that they think is an effect of technology and electricity, and so they go back to the 1800s and they create this commune. Have you seen this movie? It's one of my favorite movies. I love it, The Village. And... They, they're trying to create utopia where suffering can't get to them. You know how the movie opens? The movie opens with a father weeping over the casket of his son. Fascinating. The question for the Christian is not, do I have to suffer? The question is, how will I respond to it as a follower of Jesus? So number one, dude, sin, it does cause suffering, but it's not always your own. It's not always your own. And most importantly, it was, it was not a part of God's good creation in Eden, which means suffering is a part of life, yes. But as a Christian, we do not take a passive approach to suffering. But aim to end unjust suffering we see in the world because that's what Jesus did. Jesus did not take a passive approach to your suffering. He acted. And the other type of suffering you see in the New Testament, which we are even more uncomfortable with if we're not there enough already today, um, is suffering that is exactly because people have chosen to follow Jesus. Now, why does that cause suffering? Well, because we live in an upside-down, broken world. And in that context, following Jesus actually subjects you to a kind of suffering that you would be safe otherwise. Let me show it to you. Isaiah 59, 19 talks about this. He who departs from evil... He makes himself a prey. What is that saying about the context? He's saying, dude, because you've chosen to live rightly, it's actually going to bring suffering in your life. Oh, what? I didn't sign up for this. 1 Peter 4 talks about people thinking you're strange when you don't do the same stuff they do. And it says they malign you. They mock you. If you just went in it with them, you'd be, a part, you'd be cool. We'd all be cool. But when you don't, it brings mocking on you, malignment. Matthew uh, 5.10, dude, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. 
for righteousness sake. For people like that, oh, theirs is the kingdom. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. You know, have you read that one? Hall of faith? All these heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. You know how one of the ways it describes these people who are heroes of our faith? They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. In this case, uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians, he's explaining what it's like to be a servant of God. <laughs> what do we think that looks like? 2 Corinthians 6, 4, 10, he says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Oh, how do we affirm? How do we commend ourselves that we're servants of God? Oh, by great endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings. All of these things, why is it, what's this list? Oh, this is affirming that we serve God. Imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger. How else? What else commends us that we serve God? Oh, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, man. Truthful speech, the power of God, the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters, y'all, and yet are true. As unknown, yet we are known. As dying, but behold, we live. As punished, yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. That's how you know you're a servant of God. Wow, Paul, that's not my picture. I was hoping like my marriage would work out, you know? <laughs> or like maybe the church would grow. Hebrews 10, 32, let me show you another one. <clears throat> Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you became a Christian? What a cool way to th talk about becoming a Christian. Um, oh yeah, when you endured great conflict full of suffering. What was that like? Oh, man, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourself had a better lasting possession. Can I just, real quick, let's pause, because this is really heavy. Um, America is a blip on the history scales of where we find ourselves in a place where Christianity has become accepted. Can I, can, I, can I tell you that that's not the historical trend around the world where Christianity is accepted, at least those who are truly following Jesus, all right? The reality is that most of us have very little experience with uh, getting persecuted for our faith, right? Despite the larger current in our culture, Christianity is still relatively accepted still here in the South. And if you're afraid to be ousted as a Christian, it's because you think you'll lose cool points, not because you'll be dragged in the streets and murdered in broad daylight right? But the perspective of suffering here, y'all, is so intriguing, isn't it? And it seems like people who met Jesus, who were impacted by Jesus, saw him, knew him as better, more lasting, of more value than prosperity and comfort in their lives here. Very fascinating. The ex and a perfect example of this is Stephen. What's going on as Stephen is stoned to death for preaching the gospel? And his impulse, while people are casting rocks at him until he dies, is to pray for their forgiveness, like, what is that? That's not happening with me, okay? Like, 
Someone cuts me off in traffic, and I'm like, fire from heaven, Lord, right? And these guys are throwing rocks at him until he dies. And his impulse is to pray for their forgiveness. Dude, what had happened to this guy? Like, what is he looking at? That, he's, that this is his impulse. Where does it even come from? I'll tell you two main reasons, I think, people endured suffering the way they did in the Bible. Number one, they seem to think that suffering is accomplishing something in them. The biblical perspective of suffering sees it through a redemptive lens. They seem to think God can redeem suffering for our good. That God doesn't waste our suffering, even our sin. And this causes them to be joyful in the midst of suffering. And what is it accomplishing? What did they think it was accomplishing? Well, Hebrews 10 hints at it. He says, you guys are putting up with people confiscating your property because you know you're going to have a better and lasting possession, something that lasts longer than your physical property. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The New Testament is going to say, our inheritance as children of God so surpasses any amount of suffering here on earth that it won't be comparing. So it wasn't just, but it wasn't just grin and bear it because later it will pay off. That's not the only reason they endured it. Something else was happening. Romans 5.3 says this, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. What? Because we know the suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. So it builds confidence, it builds character, and hope, right? All these things, they seem to know in their hearts, they knew it like in their gut, that what the enemy meant for evil, God can turn for our good. Uh, but that's only part of why they could suffer well. That's part of it. They did know, as John Piper says, when the enemy swings the sort of adversity down our flank, God can cause us to turn in just the right way where the strike that was meant to kill shaves off the sinful flesh and turns us into something that looks more like Jesus. Yeah, dude, they knew that. And let's, so let's just let's take it aside real quick before we go to the next logical step. Um, how do you respond to difficult and adversity? If you're anything like me, you immediately throw a pity party. You invite everyone, right? All right? Guilt everyone in the room to conform to your mood, right? Get down in the mud with me, you know? Um, does difficulty and adversity immediately cause you to throw your hands up and walk away? Or do you retain authority over your spirit and over its circumstances and over maybe even your very self? But the fact that God doesn't waste our suffering wasn't the primary reason they could endure suffering. There was something way stronger, right? As good as building character and eternal glory is, that's not the primary reason they could rejoice in suffering. It was partly that. They knew, hey, our light momentary troubles achieving for us eternal glory, yes and amen, right? But what was the primary thing they saw that made them willing to suffer? How did they not lose heart in the midst of such suffering, right? Was it just, well, this is good for me, <laughs> and it'll pay off later? Was it just that? I love to imagine that I have a high pain tolerance, like I'm some big, tough dude. Um, any amount of real pain immediately cures me of that arrogance. Uh, like stump my toe, pull a muscle, and you're like, I'm going home, guys. You know, I'm out, right? Uh, one time I passed out when they were taking blood. Like the nurse passed the needle, and I just, the needle, and I just locked eyes with it when they passed it over. And then I just passed out, right? Um, and if you're like, ha, 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 I'm like, okay, cool. Well, you know, 
Why don't you hold a tarantula or, you know, whatever. <laughs> Jump in the water with sharks. The, the idea of pain, y'all, turns our knees to jelly, doesn't it? Just the idea of it, right? And like, I'm out, right? Um, but it's not just physical pain that turns our knees to jelly in our life, is it? Disappointment, failure, getting a fight with your spouse. Like, all I have to do is try really hard and fail to turn my knees to jelly. Like, there's no shortage of things that can sweep our legs of faith out from underneath us. Get physically sick, get spiritually sick. Dude, just a long, dark winter for some of us is all it takes. Just a week of clouds and we're, you know, we can lose heart, don't we? Anyone? Anyone losing heart? Is anyone feeling that the circumstance is just unbearably oppressive? And there's just no way out from underneath it? Anyone losing heart? What did they see? How could Stephen pray for his murderers? How can Paul, right from a prison cell, rejoice in the Lord always? How can Paul and Silas sing in the inner dark dungeon in Acts 16 after they were beaten black and blue? How could they hold on to hope when all hope seemed lost? How did they endure the darkness without letting the darkness crush them? Dude, what happened to these people? You know, you know, part of it, maybe the bigger issue, I think, the bigger thing that happened to these people? The song, It Is Well, the story of the song, It Is Well, helps us begin to understand what these people saw and how they could endure suffering the way they did. Let me read you the story of how the song, It Is Well, came into being. On November 21, 1873, Horatio Spafford and his wife and four children went to board French ocean liners to cross the Atlantic for Europe. Horatio was, however, delayed with business and planned to catch a boat the next week and meet his family in Europe. Four days into the journey, that French liner struck an iron-hulled Scottish ship and both sank, killing 226 passengers. A sailor rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna, Horatio's wife. Still alive, her four daughters had drowned in the wreck. He pulled her into the boat, and they were picked up by another large vessel nine days later and landed in Wales. From there, she wired to her husband. God, every time this stupid story gets me. Um, Saved alone, what shall I do? Uh, Mr. Spafford booked passage on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife. On the journey over the same waters where his daughters died, Horatio wrote these words. When peace like... (laughs) Sorry, I'm trying to... I'm fighting it. I'm fighting it. I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll... Come on, man. Get it together. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it's well. It's well with my soul. What was he looking at? Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance uphold that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. What did they see? They saw the suffering of another on their behalf. They saw that he too has suffered. They saw the most brilliant, beautiful, winsome person. They saw the most obedient, humble, righteous person. God himself, who deserved honor and reputation and royalty and glory, suffer. That's what they saw. They saw God himself take our suffering on him. Not like a little suffering. 
not a little bit. Like the only person in history who ever deserved honor and glory and blessing received condemnation and curse. They saw him crushed on their behalf. They saw their sins pressed down on the Lamb of God until he died. They saw Jesus. They saw the land itself grow dark when the man passed, as if God was saying, all the darkness in all creation, all your darkness, past, present, future, I'm pouring it on my son as the sky disappears, as the sun disappears from the sky. They saw Jesus suffer, man. They saw a God who doesn't look down unsympathetically at their suffering, but rather steps into it. They saw a God who said to them, I would rather bear your suffering myself than see you die in it. That's what they saw. They saw a God who bears the burdens of his children. Tim Keller says, the cross won't tell you the reason that you're suffering. Who knows? Who knows? It will tell you what the reason isn't. It isn't that God doesn't love you. It can't be. It's impossible. It isn't that God has abandoned you because God took an active position towards your suffering. He came right into the center of it, even unto death. He suffered so that we would know our suffering has a shelf life. He suffered so that we would know our suffering has a shelf life. It will not be the end of us. Hmm? That's what they saw. Can I ask you a question? Do you see his suffering? Do you see it? Do you see the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world? Is that what you see, or does your own suffering blind you to it? Is your suffering more important than his? Horatio, Paul, and Silas, and Stephen, in the midst of their suffering, worshiped. And I'd like to say to you this, I'd like to say this, when the dark night of the soul grabs your throat, and sorrow and adversity rush in over you and you wonder whether the sun will ever shine again? Look right here. Rebel against the darkness and praise from your place of need. See it as an act of rebellion. Let worship be the oil that lubricates the joints of your soul that, so you flex and don't break under the suffering. We all know how to praise on the mountaintops, so we know how to praise in the valley. Not because we're sadistic, aesthetic, bring on the suffering. No, it's not it. No, because we know because of Jesus, one day, all suffering, all pain, all sickness will be purged from the earth. That he will one day come and completely finish what he started on the cross. It will, the fruit of the cross will come in all consummation over all of creation. And the land itself will be redeemed. And suffering will stop. I just want to say to you, if you're in a place of suffering today, Hold on. Hold on. Hold on, y'all. And when you emerge from the fog on the other side, you'll find that your faith has been fortified and matured and strengthened in a way that a season of prosperity and ease could never accomplish in a million years. Tracking? 1 Peter 2 says this, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, 
He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I don't know why you could be suffering in this life right now. I don't. There's a myriad of reasons why it's pressing down on you. In the midst of Jesus' suffering, it says that he entrusted himself to God. What does that look like for you? What would it look like for you, even in the midst of the storm, to say, God, I trust you? Even though it seems that your hand is bringing the pain, I trust you. Even though it seems like you're the one breaking my bones, I trust you. As the scripture says, even though he slay me, I will yet hope in him. What does that look like in faith? And can I just end by saying this? Um, God is heart, God's heart is broken for our suffering. He doesn't look unsympathetically on the suffering of his children. If not, Jesus would not have come if that wasn't the case. Let's stand and pray.